Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We are going to continue in our series to the New Testament book of Acts. And so if you brought your Bible with you, if you could open up to Acts chapter 15, that's where we're going to be today. And it's going to be helpful because I'm referring to this message today. Uh, Acts 15, 1 through 35 is our text. And I'm calling this sermon, How to Handle Disagreements. When you look in the book of Acts, all through the book of Acts, and really all of Paul's writings, there is a lot of people mentioned by name that that Paul had conflict with. I mean, think about this. Paul had a conflict with the apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Paul, or excuse me, Peter had gone to the Galatians. He was eating with them, but then when there's these Jews show up, Paul removes himself from the Gentiles and he refused to eat, eat with them. So, so Peter, I'm going to talk about Peter here. Peter is being a hypocrite. And so Paul confronts him face to face. He calls him out. They had conflict, right? Well, there was this another guy. There was a guy named Elamus. We talked about him a few weeks ago, the magician in Acts chapter 13. There was conflict there. Paul called that guy a lot of names for doing what he was doing. There is conflict with these, these Jews. They came down from Antioch, and they were saying that you have to be circumcised in order to get saved. And we're actually going to look at that text today. There was conflict. There was conflict that Paul had with the church in Corinth. Corinth was a church gone wild. Sin was rampant in the local church. And also there were some opponents Paul had in the church that were calling him out. And so there's conflict there. Paul had conflict with the Sanhedrin. He had conflict with Governor Felix, Governor Festus, King Agrippa. There was these two guys, one named Hymenius and Alexander. Paul had great conflict with those guys for teaching what they were teaching. And this is only a partial list of the conflict in the New Testament. And there's these people that say all the time, here's a a statement we hear. Why can't we be a church like the book of Acts? Can we get back to the, the first church and be like the church of Acts? Well, they had conflict. Lots of conflict. And so if you're going to have a church on earth that's going to grow and reach unbelievers with the gospel, then there's going to be conflict. I can promise you that. If there isn't conflict, then this is what's going on. Someone is always getting their way, and someone else is being a doormat. That's how it works in a marriage, and that's how it works in the church, too. The only perfect church we'll ever have will exist in heaven. So today, this morning, we're going to bring some principles from Acts chapter 15. I want to give you some, some points that maybe we can, we can use when there, we have some disagreements. So this sermon, there's going to be a lot of talk back. And here's the deal. I, if, if you guys talk back a lot, I'll brag about you at the 11 o'clock service. So make sure you do this a lot, okay? How about this? Anybody experiencing any disagreements or conflicts in their life? Show of hands. Yeah, that's like all of us, okay? This, this, if, if you're alive, if you're breathing air, well, then there's going to be conflicts. So, so, I mean, think about it. In our lives, we have marriage conflicts. We have financial conflicts. We have friendship conflicts. We have different points of view. And these, co- these things, it causes tensions. It causes strife. It causes people to not be on the same page. Well, what are we going to do? How do we handle this? Well, someone has said, well, what you need to do, just let it roll off your back. Just roll it off, let it roll off your back, and everything's going to be fine. Well, often, many times when there's conflict, someone is right, and there's someone who is wrong. And so to just let it simply roll off your back, if somebody is wrong, well, that is just simply wrong, and it's not right. So what do we get to do? What are we to do when there's conflict in these, these relationships within our, within our life? Well, let's look in the book of Acts and see what they did. 
Acts chapter 15, verse number 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea that were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Here's my first point for us this morning. Point number one. When there's a disagreement, seek wisdom and authority. Okay? If you notice in that text, in verse 1 it says, circumcised and saved. The same sentence. Those two words don't go together. Okay? That's not the gospel. That is adding something to the gospel, which isn't the gospel. Now, if you notice in that text, it says that these, these men came down from Judea. Okay, so the, this is happening in Antioch, which is in the north, and Judea is in the south, and that's, that says that they came down. Well, often we'll read that and say, well, there's a, there's a contradiction. There's a contradiction in the Bible. Throw out the Bible. It's worthless. We don't need to read it anymore. Well, no, you need to kind of look at this. What's going on here? You've got to know the topography. Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. It's, in, it's, on, it's Mount Zion, and so Antioch is lower in elevation, so they're coming down in elevation. Luke is making a geographical point for us here. And these men, they're talking about circumcision. Well, what's circumcision? I think most of us know what circumcision is. It's exactly what you think they're talking about. Well, it started in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 17. And God made a covenant with, with Abraham. So circumcision is a mark on the flesh. It's symbolizing that you are part of the Jewish nation. And so for the men that are circumcised, this is a really, really big deal. Because it's a marker that is saying, I belong to the people of God. And so if you had this marker, you took it very seriously. And also, if you didn't, you would look down upon people who didn't. Go back to the story of David and Goliath. Maybe you remember this story. There's, there's Goliath who's the Philistine giant and he's taunting the nation of Israel. He's calling the Jews all these names. And the little shepherd boy comes out and faces him. And he's brought his sling and his stones. And then so David says to Goliath, he says, You uncircumcised Philistine. He's calling him out. He's saying, You're a Gentile. You're uncircumcised. You do not belong to the people of God. He's saying, you're a pagan and a heathen. He's starting fighting words, right? That's what he's doing. Well, when the gospel started, it started with the Jews and it went to the Gentiles. But instead of rejoicing, no, these Jewish people, he took up an offense. They, 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 they got sideways and it's really bothering them. Now here's these believers that are not being circumcised. And they're getting upset because there's non-Jews that are coming to faith. Let's keep reading. Look in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Well, notice they call it a question. This is no small dissension. This is a full-on, full-blown debate. It's very heated and very animated. And both sides are, are kind of upset. Welcome to the book of Acts. Okay, there's a disagreement in the church. And so there are these guys that, that are they're having this debate and they're arguing about how the church should operate. So here's the thing. Sometimes you can't just simply work it out. Sometimes you can't simply sort things out. You can't settle a disagreement. And sometimes it seems to both parties that both parties have legitimate points of view. And to them, both sides seem legit. And since you can't get past this, what are you to do? 
Well, both parties felt very secure in their positions. And Paul and Barnabas, they got issues with these guys that are teaching this. And there's these group of men that are teaching that, sal- that's, that circumcision leads to salvation. Well, obviously, that's not the gospel. Okay, that is not what Jesus taught. And so they're having this no small dissension is what, what Luke records for us. They got issues what these guys are teaching. They have beef with what's, with the, what's going on. And they want to get to the heart of the matter. So what do they do? You notice they call it a question. They're, they're saying, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to take it to the church. Let's get it before higher authority. Look in verse 3. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all that God had done with them. But some believers, notice that, they use the word believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. So I hope you don't miss what just happened here. There are some Pharisees in Jerusalem who are believers, right? That's what the, Luke tells us. They're believers in Jesus. They've converted. They've moved beyond works-based salvation. They've moved beyond all the burdens and traditions of men. But at the same time, they're still holding on to their old ways. Okay? And think about this. This is very early on in the church start. The church is still in, in, in infancy here. But notice this, though. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He changes your heart. There's this inner transformation that takes place. When you place faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you recognize that you're a sinner, you turn from your sin, you turn toward Jesus Christ in faith, you anchor your soul and your heart to to Jesus, He saves you. And it happens in a moment, and it's done, it's, it's over, it's history, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted into the family of God. God, you were spiritually dead, and God gives you spiritual life, and you're saved. Amen? But here's the deal. Are you changed instantly over all the little details of life? Are your eyes open instantly to every aspect of truth? The answer is no. It's a journey. What he described earlier, we call that justification. But what happens after that is called sanctification. Sanctification is just a big, fancy, churchy word that means set apart. And sanctification happens after justification. And again, justification happens in a moment, but then sanctification happens over a long period of time. Justification, it it, it is a legal term. It means that God sees you as he sees his son. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ... God the Father sees you through the death of His Son. That the nails that Jesus Christ bore in His hands, God the Father sees you through that. And you've been declared forgiven. You've been declared righteous. And then the process begins. Okay, That's why we say sanctification happens over a lifetime. More talkback time. Anybody arrived? I see no hands, right? Okay, That's none of us. None of us have arrived. But here's the very hard truth, church. There are some Christians, though they've been justified a long time ago, they were justified 30, 40, 50 years ago, 
they haven't been sanctified all that much. Okay? Salvation, it's a choice. And so is sanctification. Okay? And here's the sad thing. There are Christians that have been Christians for decades, but yet they're still baby Christians. And what's going on here in Acts chapter 15? We still do the same thing today. We still do the same thing. So these Pharisees, they're saved by grace through faith. And to them, circumcision, it's a really big deal. And since it's a really big deal to them, this is what they think. Since it's a big deal to us, it should be a big deal to everybody. And we do the same thing. Don't look down on them so quick because we do the exact same thing in the church today. We think something like, oh, I love the King James Version of the Bible. I love it. You know what? Everybody should love it. That's the only Bible we're going to read. As if the Apostle Paul is writing his letters in 17th century Old English. I don't think so. We think, you know what? The Baptist hymnal has helped me so much in my faith walk. Then we think, you know what? The hymns are the only form of worship that's pleasing to God. We think, you know, I grew up in a church with no drums and no guitar. You know what that means? We should never have drums and guitar in a church. And we're no different than these guys in Acts chapter 15. It's only the act that changes a little bit. The list goes on and on and on. We come up with all kinds of things. There's this disagreement that they're having here in Acts chapter 15. What are you supposed to do? Will you go to the authority, which is the Bible? Look in verse 5 again. It says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. So it says they considered it. Well, how do you think they considered it? What do you think they did? Well, they searched the scriptures. I think they talked it out. I also think they prayed about it. Now, the Bible doesn't say they prayed about it, but I'm assuming they prayed about it. They sought out godly wisdom on the matter. And sometimes we need to do that, and we need to seek out godly wisdom. We need to turn to authority, but we also need to turn to plurality. We need to seek out many godly wisdom. Let's say like you're sick and you go to the doctor. That's a very good thing. If you're sick and you go to the doctor and you hear what the doctor has to say, the doctor says, this is what I think is wrong. Sometimes it's a good thing to say, you know what, doc? I think I'm going to get a second opinion. That's a good thing to do when you're sick, and that's a good thing to do when there's a disagreement. Maybe you have conflict with a friend, or maybe you have conflict with a spouse. There's conflict in your marriage. It's a good thing to get help. Let me say this real quick. Go down this rabbit trail here. Sometimes it's a very good thing to get marriage counseling. But there's people that say sometimes, no, I don't think we need marriage counseling. We can do this on our own. We got this. But sometimes there comes this fork in a road, and both parties, both husband and wife, are holding on to their point of view. Here's the deal. Your opinion matters, and your spouse's opinion matters. And so when you come to this situation, it's a very good thing to get marriage counseling. But often we see that as as a negative thing, as a bad thing. It's not. It's a very good thing. Especially when you're going to get counselor from a Christian counselor. Someone who's going to bring the word of God into the discussion. They're going to say, hey, we're going to bring God into the room on this. This is what God, we think God says in this situation. And then it's also okay to get a second opinion. You know, but there's people sometimes, they go to their friends and say, hey, we got this issue. We're going to come to you. We're going to ask you what to do. And the friends that I'm talking about do not bring God into the, into the room. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. 
And then what happens is people say, well, my friend said get out of the marriage. Because my friend told me, he says, you know what? If you're not happy, get out. Listen, God is more concerned with your holiness than God is concerned with your happiness. God wants you to be happy. Okay? But, but don't get me wrong. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have pleasure. He wants you to have friendship and companion. But sometimes people use that happiness card as a get-out-of-marriage-free card. God wants you to be faithful. God wants you to display the gospel in your marriage. Keep going on this rabbit trail. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that marriage is like a mystery. You see, the mystery is something that is very profound. It represents Jesus and the church. So why should we stay married? You stay married to display the gospel. You stay faithful because Christ was faithful to you. So here's what we do, men. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. He died for her. And wives, you submit to the, the, the spiritual leadership of your husband because the church followed Jesus. So what we're doing was we're living out the gospel in our marriage. We're living out the gospel in our marriage when we extend grace, when we extend unconditional love, when we serve one another. See, we need to recognize that marriage is not about companionship. It's not about friendship. It's not about sex. It's not about the kids. It's not about mutual interest. Your marriage is about the gospel. And I'm going down this rabbit trail. You're thinking, what does this have to do with Acts chapter 15? I'm saying this because the Bible is our source of authority, and there's so many issues that we're going to get wrong if we don't bring the Bible into the discussion. You see, if we don't open our Bibles and see what God had to say, often we're going to get the answers wrong. Keep reading. Look in verse 7. And after there had been much debate, much debate, this sounds like it's a heated debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Here's my my second point this morning. Point number two. When there's a disagreement, listen for God's heart on the matter. So in verse 7, it's called a debate. This is a legal term. So it's trying to let us know, it's it's, it's painting this picture for us. There's very strong feelings, many perspectives, temperatures are rising in this debate. And Peter stands up and he says, brothers. And then he says, you know, and that's very interesting. Okay, this is what we need to do. When there's an issue, we need to focus on what we know more than how we feel. When a disagreement arises, both parties need to focus on what they know more than what they feel and what they disagree on. Look at, continue, verse 8. Peter says, And God, who knows the hearts, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will here's what just happened Peter had a mic drop moment he just dropped a truth bomb on them Peter's saying hey you're asking these new believers to keep the law and this is what's going on you're not keeping the law Peter's saying, you know what, that's not right. You're asking the Gentiles to do something that you're not doing, and it's not right. 
And then he refers to Cornelius and his household. Maybe you remember back a few chapters ago, Peter has this vision, this, this sheet with all the four-footed animals and creepy things, and he then has to go to this, this Gentile and preach the gospel. Found in Acts chapter 10, this is what he says about this, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on even the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he asked them to remain, then they asked him to remain many days. So here's what happens. Peter gets it. Okay, Peter understands the salvation that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And here in Acts chapter 15, Peter's telling the leadership, he's telling the apostles, he's telling all the pastors in Jerusalem, he's saying, listen, the gospel's for everybody. And the gospel's not contingent on the stuff that you come up with. That's what he's saying. He's saying all this other stuff that we come up with, it messes up the grace of God. He's saying, don't put anything on top of grace. Because if you put anything on top of grace, it's no longer grace. Here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. He's saying, Jesus plus nothing equals forgiveness. Jesus plus nothing equals eternal life. You see, it's not about eternal works. And I think Peter is saying, hey guys, you need to recognize it's not about this treadmill. It's not about the treadmill of righteousness. You see, religion wants to get you on a treadmill, wants to crank up the dial, and wants you to go for for a long, long time. You ever been on a treadmill? Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? You ever get on there and turn up the dial, and you're just going for it? And you're going, you're like, this is too fast. I need to slow down. I need to hit the off button. And if you don't hit the off button, pretty soon you're going to be shot off on the floor and you're going to wind up in a crumpled mess on the gym floor looking like an idiot. It's the same way with religion. It's the exact same way with religion. You can't stay on the religion treadmill forever. You're only going to be on there so long until you fall off and you're shot off on the floor. Here's the deal. God doesn't want you on the treadmill God doesn't want you on the works-based treadmill trying to earn His grace and earn His favor and earn everything because it's all about grace. He forgives you, because, not because of who, who you are, but because of who He is. You see, grace is something that is received. Grace is never achieved. And we need to recognize that the source of grace, it's God. There is no work that you can do to inherit eternal life. Are we saved by work? The answer is yes. But that work is everything that Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus went to the cross and he bore our sins and endured the wrath of God, that's the work that saves us. It's nothing that we do. It's all but what he's done. So I like to call what's going on here the grace debate. And guess what? The grace debate was settled in Acts chapter 15. Was, was, there, was there confusion? Was there a debate? Here it is. Do we add circumcision to the grace of God, do we not? And the, the debate was settled. And the answer, no. No. We can't add anything to it. 
But here's the application for us, church. This is how it can affect us. There's a temptation for us to be so focused on truth that we focus on the letter. We, we want to focus on the truth of God, but what happens to us as Southern Baptist believers, we begin to focus on the letter. Well, what do I mean by that? We believe in truth. We believe the Bible is God's word. We believe God's word is authoritative, that, that it's God's revelation to us, that God, it, the Bible helps us grow in godliness. We believe that the Bible renews our minds and changes our thinking, and, and it reshapes our priorities, and it gives us this new heart, this new desire, that, that the Bible actually gives us a new worldview after we get this new heart, after we become a new creation. But then what happens, there's this tendency for us to be so fixated on truth that it becomes about the letter of the law. What do I mean by that? Well, picture, think through all the people you know, all the believers you know. Do you know anybody that is so truth-filled that they become legalistic? They become cold and, and, and very rigid. Can you think of anybody like that? You see, there's no way that people like that are going to bring people to Jesus because people like that repel unbelievers. Unbelievers don't want to be around that person. They, that repels them. Well, here's the question. Did Jesus repel or did, did Jesus attract? Hollered out. Attract. Yes, thank you. This side of the room is doing better right now. You're, you're, you're this room's coming up next. He attracted. You're right. He, he, and you know what? He was 100% truthful, wasn't he? He blasted the Pharisees. He blasted the religious elite. But at the same time, Jesus loved the prostitute. And he loved the tax collectors. He lo- loved the ordinary Joes, the lepers. All the people that were broken were attracted to Jesus. You see, Jesus was 100% truthful and 100% grace. Jesus balanced both, didn't he? And that's what he calls us to do. He calls us to balance both. He calls us to balance truth and grace. So if we get so focused on truth, but then we neglect grace, what happens is we'll become legalistic. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about here. Again, this is the talking part. I'm going to ask you some questions. I expect answers. Here are the ways we get the truth, but miss God's heart. Okay, here's number one. Are we ready? I'm going to have them up on the screen for you. Number one way. Homosexuality is a sin. True or false, homosexuality is a sin. You would say? True, and you're right. No trick questions here, by the way. Okay? Maybe you don't like that. You're like, oh, I don't like that. Let's not talk about that at church. We shouldn't be talking about that stuff at church. Hey, God wrote the book. I didn't write the book. And we're going to talk about the things that God spoke about. Okay? So what happens for us is we get so twisted. We become so letter-oriented, letter of the law, that we miss God's heart. And this is a real problem with the American church, okay? It's all truth and no grace on this issue. We are to be people that welcome others, that welcome people that are engaged in this lifestyle to come here and walk, and we're to to do that. We're to welcome here, and you would ask why? Because we want them to feel welcomed. We want people to be loved that are caught in the grips of sin. We want them to know that they're loved by God. You know, so what we're going to do, we're going to love them too. So if they're going to be anywhere, I hope they're here. You know why? So they can hear the gospel, how God died for our sins, and then they can turn from their sins and trust in the God that died for them. And then we let God change them. 
We don't change them. God changes them. This place, this church, it's a hospital for sinners. It's not a country club for saints. And the very moment we say, oh, not you. Oh, you, not you. You leave. You, we don't have time for you. That's not what Jesus wanted. And when sin will see, he tells me, you're not welcome here. That's not Jesus. That's not the gospel ministry. How about this? Number two, God hates divorce. True or false, God hates divorce. True, that's true. You got it. I mean, the Bible's crystal clear in it. It says black and white, God hates divorce. God's plan from the very beginning for creation that the two would become one flesh. But God permitted divorce, didn't he? Why do we know this? Well, the Gospel of Mark tells us so. And the reason he permitted divorce, he tells us, because of the hardness of our hearts. But that's not God's ideal. Okay? But there are grounds for divorce. The number one exception clause found in Matthew chapter 5, it's adultery. Number two, abandonment by an unbeliever. I believe that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And three, your spouse dies. Not the marriage is over. But let me try to balance truth and grace for you. God hates divorce, but divorce is not final. Divorce is not fatal. Even though marriage is meant to last for a lifetime, it's not the end of your life. And sometimes there's people in the church that go, oh, you've been divorced? Ah, it's over for you. Sorry, God's not going to use you anymore. Go sit on the sidelines. It's over. No, your identity is not marked by divorce. Our identity is found in Christ. So divorce is not fatal. Divorce is not final. God has a plan. How about this? Number three, unborn children have a right to life. True or false? Unborn children have the right to life. You would say, you're right. Very right. And I, I, let's debate this one all day. Okay? When, do, when, does the moment of, when does life begin? I say at the moment of conception. God said, I formed you in your mother's womb. I just picture God up in heaven like with, with uh, crochet hooks. You know, need, That's what he's doing inside your mom's womb. He's, he's made you. He says, I knew you. You're wonderfully made. You can't skirt around that. It is crystal clear. That's when, when, when life begins. But check this out. Someone else has said, but children who are born have rights too. Sometimes Christians get so focused on the unborn, which is a good thing. I think that's a very, very good thing. But then Christians forget and then neglect kids who need a home. If we're going to be a people that are adamantly against abortion, and I think we should be, then we should be people that are radically pro-adoption, that are radically pro-taking care of kids who are going without We should be so very quick to clothe and feed and care for any child that is neglected. Here's another one. Number four, sexual immorality is a sin. True or false? True. Hey, you're four for four, 100% on this one. I want to be crystal clear. That is true. That's sin. But then there's some Christians, I think they major on this because they want to deflect away from other sins. Let me ask you this one. What about gossip? What about slander? What about harboring resentment? How about racism? You better believe that racism is alive and well. How about favoritism? How about manipulating others for your benefit? What about that? Because there's some Christians who want to focus on this sin. You know why? Because they don't struggle with that sin. And it's so much easier to point the fingers elsewhere than rather taking care of yourself. It's so much easier to to rail against sins that you don't struggle with. It's easy to say, oh, I hate those sins. Those sins are terrible. You know why? Well, I don't struggle with those. 
It's kind of easy to nitpick and point out the sins in other people rather than to take care of the sins in your life. Here's number five, last one. The Bible must be obeyed. True or false, the Bible must be obeyed. You would say? Very good, five for five. But then there's some Christians that are the biggest Pharisees around. Screaming and yelling, we, we need to obey the Bible. we got to get back to the Bible. All right, let me give you a test. You say you follow the Bible? Well, let's see what, what God said on this. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is to? Neighbor, you're right. The second way is to love your neighbor as yourselves. And there's some Christians say, oh, I love God. And then then they say they love others. But here's the deal. If you love your neighbor in words only, then you're a liar. You're a liar. I can say I love my wife, but if I don't do anything for her, then I'm a liar, right? It's that that way in a marriage. It's It's that way with your neighbor, too. If you say you love your neighbor, then show me what you're doing to, for your neighbor. We, we don't need to be saying we need, need to obey the Bible. At the same time, we're not showing the love for our neighbors and our actions. Keep reading. Look in verse 12. And all the assembly felt silent. And Peter had that mic drop moment. They shut up. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tents of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Here's point number three for us this morning. Point number three, when there's a disagreement, look to Scripture for confirmation. I mean, picture this. All the who's who of the first century church is here. There's there's James, the half-brother of Jesus. He's the, the lead pastor of First Baptist Jerusalem. Not the real name of the church, but I like to call it that. I think it's hilarious. But anyways, and there's also Barnabas and Paul and Peter. And what do they do to get an answer to this question? Well, they clearly search the scriptures because here he's quoting Amos chapter 9. They went back to the Bible. You see, when there was a problem, they searched the scriptures. Read with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The word of God says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And is profitable for teaching, and for reproof, and for correction, and for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So someone will say, well, what's in it for me? Why is the Bible profitable? What, 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 how's it going to benefit me if I read this thing? Well, it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, we need to recognize that all Scripture... Old Testament and New Testament, 66 books, every word, every verse, every chapter. It's all breathed out by God. That the Holy Spirit guided over around 40 men to write the most beautiful book in the history of all time. God wrote Scripture so that we could know Him, that we could love Him, so then we can go and share His story. And you you want to know God's heart? You want to know what God's like? Well, then read the Bible. 
Because the Bible's going to tell us what to believe. The Bible's going to tell us what is right. The Bible's going to tell us what's wrong. The Bible's going to tell us how to live a godly life. What it looks like to live a life that God wants you to live. But then there's people who say, you know, I don't like to read. What? That's like saying, I don't like hugs. But then you're dying for affection. We need to read the Bible. Should we compromise when there's a disagreement? Yes. But then there's times when dis- then compromise is not an option. We're about to read about this. We should never compromise on what the Bible clearly says. Read about this. Look in verse 19. It says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses in every city has chosen, excuse me, every city, those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. So here, here's what they're saying. Here's my fourth point. Let me get to point number four first. When there's a disagreement, seek compromise where you can. Here's what they said. Here's their conclusion. We're not going to trouble the Gentiles. The word trouble means to frustrate. It means to aggravate. They said, hey, we're not going to force them to get circumcised. We're not going to put that on top of grace. This is what we are going to do. We're going to ask them to stay away from the things that hurt their Christian life. We're going to ask them to stay away from things that are polluted by idols. I believe Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says we're going to ask them to stay away from sexual immorality because that's going to hurt their Christian life. We need, we need to realize that, that, that sexual immorality was rampant in the Roman Empire. And if you're going to live differently than that, that's going to be very gospeled sinner. It, 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 people are going to say, you live like that? That's wild. You see, the Christian ethic is to live a pure life. See, if you're a Roman citizen, namely a Roman male, you had rights. You had lots of rights. Like you could have affairs, that was your right. You had rights to do lots of stuff, and I'm going to leave it at that word, read between the lines, because there's little ears here, we're going to keep it PG. But if you're going to live different than that, that'd be very countercultural. And so what happens now is there's this sexual revolution that's going on in the Roman Empire because all these Christians are coming to faith and they're, they're living differently. The sexual revolution that I'm talking about is very different. In fact, it's the opposite of what we saw in this country during the 60s and 70s. The sexual revolution looked like this. There'd be one man, they'd marry one woman, the two would become one flesh, and they would stay faithful to each other for a lifetime. Crazy, right? That's wild you would choose to live like that. So was there a compromise? No. They said, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to add anything to the gospel. We're going to say, hey, let's be helpful here. Let's not be hurtful. Let's try to do this thing together. Let's encourage these new believers to do the things that are helpful. And let's encourage them not to do the things that are hurtful. Everything else is gray area. Did you know there's gray area in the Christian life? There is actually a lot of gray area. This is what they're seeing, saying. Let's keep the black and white things black and white, and let's never call gray things neither black nor white. That's what they said. Keep reading, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them, to send them to Antioch with Bar- Paul and Barnabas. 
And he sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who were in the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out of us troubling you with words, unsettling your mind. Although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men, to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, for them themselves will tell you the same thing by the word of mouth. For it, is, for it seems good that the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on no greater burdens than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what is strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourself from these things, you do well. Farewell. So when they sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, preachers, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers. To those who had sent them... But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Here's my fifth and final point. Point number five. When the disagreement's been settled, rejoice. Rejoice. When the disagreement's over, when the party is settled, rejoice. It's over. They're unified here. That's what it says. It says they're one accord. You know, sometimes we need to do that. We need to rejoice when, when the disagreement's over. And they, these guys are encouraged because they came to the conclusion that the gospel plus nothing equals salvation. So here's what we need to do. Let's not add anything to the gospel. It's Jesus plus nothing. That Jesus came to this world. And he died for sinful people. That's you. That's me. We're the sinners. That God broke into the, the expanse of time and came on this rescue mission. And if we will place saving faith in Him, who will recognize He's a God that came and died for us. That God hung on the cross and He gave His life. Why? Not because of His sins. Because of you and me. We're the sinners. And if we turn to Him by faith, we will be saved. And for most of us, it's through a prayer. It's saying something along the lines of this. If you've never prayed this prayer, I beg you to do this with me now. See, dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And my sin, it separates me from you. But you loved me But yet when I was at the bottom, you still loved me. And you came and you died for me. I want to place my faith in you and you alone. Save me from my sins, Lord Jesus. I say this in your precious holy name. Amen.